Hey everybody, welcome back, all you humanizers. Is that what I should call you? Is that what we should call each other? I mean, those of us that are kind of part of this podcast community, people that are fans of Justin Bieber, they're known as believers. People that follow the Grateful Dead are known as deadheads. People that support John- Donald Trump for president are known as Trumpians. Or, or by, you know, depending on who you're talking to, they're also known as deplorables. But at least they have a name. What do we call each other? That's the question. And you know, I, I could throw out, you know, humanizers. That, that's obvious. But since humanize me is really about like, hey, I'm trying to grow. Maybe it should be wannabes. I don't know. Like, so, so that's, I guess we're going to have like a little contest here. You know, everybody's going to submit their ideas for this, what we should call ourselves. And then I'll put them all out there and and we can vote and whoever wins will be a guest on the podcast unless you want to follow the show but not to be known as a follower of this show in which case i can't help you you're listening to humanize me with bart campolo This week's episode is actually sponsored by Mormon Stories, which is another podcast run by my friend, and I actually should say my hero, John Deline. And I always, I, I think I pronounce his name wrong, which is bad, but John is somebody who I met about a year and a half ago, and he has produced this podcast that ser- serves in in one sense a much smaller community those that are that are kind of struggling with mormonism or have come out or or are post mormon but it's such a such a tightly knit community and such a defined community and he's kind of the only person in that space so his podcast has 20,000 listeners for most of its episodes. And and he has a variety of them. Some of them he's giving advice and talking. He's a psychologist um, and uh, a researcher. So he's a super smart guy, made it in industry before all that. He's, he's way more accomplished than me. But the other thing is, is that he has this other podcast where he's, he just interviews people telling their stories, hence the name Mormon Stories. And even if you're not Mormon, they are so, so many of... The ideas are transferable that all of you that are kind of in the humanize me world, I, I just encourage you to check out that podcast. I think you'll be stunned. It's funny. John used to see, I, I was talking to him the other day and he said, yeah, he used to see clients, you know, meet with people one-on-one the way I do in my counseling and coaching practice when he first got started. But his podcast grew so big and so many people were coming to him for that kind of uh, support that he ended up organizing these weekend gatherings and these workshops for people that were trying to figure out what life looks like on the other side of faith. And uh, I'm really excited about what he's doing. And, and actually, you know, I, I, I dream of the day when there's enough people contacting me that I can, I can put together a weekend like that. Because the truth is, I think that what most of us need most of all is to be in conversation with the rest of us. And, um, and John's done a great job of that. He still sees a few clients every week because he kind of, he told me that he, he wants to stay in touch with the, the inner workings of individual people working through coming out of this stuff and figuring life out. But, uh, yeah, it's a fabulous thing. So mormonstories.org is where you would go to find this podcast. And I highly recommend it to you. And so, I mean, in some sense, John is sponsoring what we're doing by, by setting a standard that I, you know I'm trying to live up to and and I, I'm hopeful that we can create something that is as helpful to people as what he's put together over the last 10 or 11 years and one of the things he said to me is he said don't feel bad that it's taking you a while to establish your rhythm and to get your voice together and to know what kind of stories you tell best he said it, it, it takes a while so bear with me we're working on this thing together all you whatever we call use. All right, now this week's show, I think you're going to dig. It is my conversation with a documentary filmmaker named John Wright, who I met 
when I first moved to Los Angeles, he doesn't live in Los Angeles. He lives in the middle of nowhere, Arizona, a little town out on the uh, Colorado River. And I met him actually through a mutual friend of ours. John's originally from Belfast, Northern Ireland, where he was a minister's kid. He grew up as a minister's kid in Belfast. And it's a, it's a crazy story how he got to Arizona. But one of our mutual friends is a BBC broadcaster from Belfast named William Crawley, who actually would be a great guy for me to get on this podcast too, now that I think about it. But William said, hey, you should have coffee with John the next time he's in Los Angeles. And about two years ago, we did that. And this coffee date went for four and a half hours. I mean, I have never, even when I met Marty, my wife, I don't think I've ever found so much so fast to talk about that we just couldn't stop. I promise you this interview is not four and a half hours, but I think you'll like it. I think you'll like John. He is just one of the warmest and most interesting people I know. So listen, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pump it up anymore. Oh, oh, the main thing to tell you about John is he's the guy making that documentary about me and my dad called With Whom I Am Well Pleased, which some of you have seen trailers. If you're looking for a trailer, go to bartcampolo.org, which is also where you could submit the email with your idea of a cool name to call us, which is also where you could find out about the counseling and coaching if you're looking for that sort of thing. Um, it's kind of the all-purpose website. But yeah, John is the filmmaker making that documentary. And we'll talk a little bit about how that comes together. Or we did talk about it. It's already over as far as I'm concerned. But it's not over for you. It's just about to happen. So let's get to it. Here we go. You're cool, right? Like you're, 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 you had a good day? I had a really good day. I can't, an inexplicably good day. Okay. Well, that's, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, I've been reading this book called Emotional Intelligence, an old book by Daniel Goleman, kind of a classic of psychological No, I've read literature. it. I've read it. It's a great yeah. book. Yeah. It's a great book. And, and in there, he talks about flow. That's the flow state where you're just kind of, nothing is effortful. I had one of those kind of days. So I just felt good. You were flowing. I was flowing, baby. I'm trying to get my head, like, there's so many things we could talk about. Mm -hmm. I called you to talk to the documentary filmmaker. Right. Because what like, would you like to know? Well, I, I, well let, let me frame it for you because, you know, on this podcast, I try to talk to like interesting people of which you qualify. And, and, and like basically what I'm trying to figure out is how what they're learning or what they're doing or what they've figured out, how a person like me who's really committed to trying to like be a good person, make the most of my life, how I can use that, the insight that you've got how I can apply that to like everyday living. And, and you, you showed me some of your documentary stuff and I, and I, and I, and I watched you doing some stuff with people and I thought being a documentary filmmaker, the way you do it is a way of, it's a way of looking at people and a way of looking at life that seems to me to be like useful, even if you don't have a camera. That's an interesting thought. So first of all, I want you to tell me, what kind of movies do you make? I've seen some, but like, what would you say you're doing? I mean, I just heard Werner Herzog the other day talking about, lo and behold, do you make those kind of movies? Is that your documentary? Not not exactly. I'm a huge fan of Werner Herzog. I just think he's a, he's a brilliant guy. Um, you know, the past couple of years have been pretty cool because both of the big projects that I've been directing are about beliefs and human stories that reflect them. So aside from the film that I'm doing on you and your dad, I made a film about the Mojave Indian tribe and its and its uh, creation stories and its songs and the Mojave language and how these huge swaths of their tradition are going away. They've been forgotten. The, the downside of an oral tradition is if it gets interrupted, it's gone. And so uh, that's happened. And the Mojave elders approved me filming them uh, for almost the first time ever, other than, you know, some very isolated things with National Geographic and sort of the, I, I guess what, National Archives or some, someone like that. But they suddenly realized that they'd be forgotten forever if they didn't capture mm. some of their stories. And so there are something like 15 fluent Mojave speakers left and the one elder that was capable of teaching the language to younger Mojaves um, died during production of the film last year. So that so part of that project is telling a story in a way that will outlast the people who lived it. Sort of the the fight for survival of an entire culture. It's interesting stuff. So for me, a, a really good documentary film is about exploring the truth and sort of 
inner truth, what's going on in people's minds and to what extent it's subjective, because that's really what interests me. And I guess when people make films, they tend to make them about the things that or, or make art of any sort, I suppose. They want to try to do so, something that they can really sink their teeth into that they find interesting. Now, it's funny because when, like, my hero, Mark Maron, interviews Werner Herzog mm -hmm. or Alan Alda or whoever he's interviewing, he's seen all of Alan Alda's work or he's seen some of it. And most of me, most of the people in the audience have seen it too. So, like, yeah. so, you know, when Alan Alda refers to MASH, everybody knows what he's talking about. You and I are talking. And most of the people that are listening are like, I don't know John Wright. Oh, yeah. Who's this guy? Like, so, yeah. so like, most of them have seen the trailer of the movie that you're making with me and my dad, which, by the way, when the heck are you going to be done with that thing? <laughs> you know, it's so funny because people are always asking him, like, it's not my movie. He filmed me, but it's not my movie. I got, I, I don't know, know, but I know, but the subtext is. What's, what's taken so long? And honestly, this is not unusual for a documentary. Like, documentaries can take years to make. I think this one's on a fairly good track. I just track want you to, to get it out be... before my dad dies. <laughs> or I die. I know. I know. I'm hoping, I'm, I'm really hoping for, you know, this winter or spring. For that film, you know, when it comes to what interested me about, about your story, it's you know, it's not only about the facts of your story of leaving Christianity, but when you think about it, it is about inner truth, that subjective kind of truth. Well, it was about why you left Christianity, and and it's about sort of exploring a couple of theories of why that happened, what motivates those theories, right? So there's there's your story and your words. Um, you know, the Christian narrative fell apart for you over time. You, you stopped believing it for rational reasons. Then there's what your dad says, you know. Bart stopped going to church. Bart stepped outside the plausibility structure, sort of a sociological explanation for why you ended up outside of Christianity. And then finally, there's like a, a brief suggestion of a psychological reason that looks at your relationship with your dad a little bit. You know, Tony Campolo as uh, this looming figure in your life. And now you could just make a film that simply cut back and forth between you and your dad arguing, countering points of theology, but I don't think it would be nearly as interesting or as compelling. And in any case, it wouldn't cause the audience to think about any of those deeper truths or possibilities or to really explore what's going on there, you know? And so that's why it's a, it's an inherently interesting project for me. I'm really excited well, about it's all, that It's also film. inherently, I mean, what most people probably don't know is, is that you grew up in Belfast, the son of a minister. Right. Right. And when you saw me and my dad talking, did you see you and your dad talking or did you go like, oh, we would never have that conversation? Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean. Because, I mean, we go at it, like not arguing, but he's like, I really want to know what's in your head. Right. And I'm like, I really don't understand how you do this. And it's a pretty raw conversation. It is a raw conversation. I mean, I admired it for that reason. You know what I mean? Did you go like, yeah. That's the conversation I have with my dad too, or do you go like, no, nah, we're not talking like that? No, my dad and I are so different. Um, not only from you and your and your dad, which I think is is true. We're not we're we don't have the same exact form of communication as you and your dad. You 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 guys have obviously a very you've worked together, which I think makes a difference. You've been forced almost to think together in some ways throughout the course of your life, or at least that's how I see it. Maybe maybe you don't see it exactly that way. But, I mean, to a certain extent, you know, you've kind of been in each other's heads in a theological sense over a long period of time. And my dad and I really haven't, apart from, you know, my rebellion. I remember walking into his office when I'm like 15 years old, into his uh, study, and, and saying, I want to figure out theology. Give me a book. So he pointed me over to his Wayne Grudem's systematic theology was laying there. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know that book no. or any of the audience does, but it's like a big sort of 1200 page, here's what evangelicals believe and why. And I went through at 15 years old and basically picked out all the parts that I hated and then told all my friends why I hated them. And, you know, so like I was not a good little Presbyterian minister's son that was going to follow in his footsteps any day soon. I was always sort of on a track of thinking, you know, how I would couch it as thinking for myself. Maybe that's generous to me. It might have, it might just be kind of like, I don't have to believe what you believe, you know? So, yeah, I don't really have 
full-on conversations with my dad like that uh, at all. You know, we talk about everything other than theology. And I think also my dad, he's retired now. I think he's sort of done in a way thinking as deeply as he was forced to think for his 40-year uh, yeah. you know, career as a Presbyterian minister. You know, the retired pastor is a curious, like, curious— Like he's loving playing golf right now. Yeah, but it's more than that. It's also just a lot of times towards the end of that ministry— you're you've thought yourself to one place, but you need to keep ministering from another place. Mm-hmm. And when you're done, that dissonance, you just go like, I don't want to think about this anymore. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of ministers who lose their faith in the process, and they they make it to the finish line. You know, but but by the time they're there, they don't really believe any of it. And then when it's over, they're like. I don't actually want to come out and say I don't believe any of it and no. I don't and I don't want to also affirm it like I used to. I just don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, so like you you came to my story and and this I, I assume this Native American story is because like you're out there in the Mojave Desert. Yeah, I mean obviously that's sort of the the circumstances that created the opportunity. But how did you get to filmmaking at all? Yeah, it's sort of, it's strange how one thing leads to another. When I lived in Belfast, I was involved in this big charismatic church where it was sort of normal to see people having all kinds of dramatic religious experiences. They'd fall over, they'd they'd see visions, they'd speak in tongues and that sort of thing. And when I moved to the States, I became quite a skeptic. You know, it's almost like that plausibility structure thing. I stepped out of sort of got a little fresh air and started to think differently about some of those experiences. And I'd read books about skepticism, people like James Randi and, you know, and debunking some of the stuff. And I began to do segments on the radio where I would debunk some claims. So you or, came to the States because you married an American woman, right? That's right. And and ended up here for that reason. And And, and then you got a radio job, like you landed in the yeah. States and they were like, you can be on the radio. No, I had done radio. That's a longer story. That's uh, probably more boring, but I had done radio in Belfast first. So I was kind of, that would have been my, my sort of Trade. dream job over here. Yeah. And so, but you haven't made any movies yet? No, not, not at all. And so I began to do segments on the radio where I would sort of start to explore kind of where my head was at, you know, and I started to debunk you know, claims or some modern folklore or something like that. And this is totally absurd, but in the area of the Colorado River where I live, there'd been this modern legend that people would talk about. And it and it turns out that people in this area for like the last 60 years have been claiming to see this kind of like mythological creature in the desert, you know, completely ridiculous, like this half man, half goat. They call it goat man. And I thought it would be really fun to interview some of these people on camera and figure out whether they really believe these stories. So it actually turned into a 42 minute film and I invited people to come watch it. 350 people showed up to the screening. It was standing room only. I have a photo of all the people sitting on the floor. We sold out of all the DVDs and I thought, Wow, you know, like this was just a silly project for my own amusement. In its own right, this thing really resonated. I assume mostly on a purely entertainment level. But was it like still. a home movie though? It was like no, it was. Or did you it, go hard? I went pretty hard at it. Had you seen other documentaries? So, like, did you like? Did you know what you were doing? What you were trying to make? Did you know it was a document? Did you know it was a documentary? Yes, and I had a good idea of what I. I had a pretty strong vision, honestly, for it in my mind because I kind of thought if there's a way to do this where we're not mocking any of the people that that actually believe this and we take them seriously enough to to listen to their stories. And um, so – but it's funny. I still get emails about that little film. I just signed a contract with a German TV station <laughs> that wants to air a cut of that Goatman film in Germany. But that anyway, that was the thought that was at the beginning where I started to take documentary much more seriously. And my thought was, if I can reach people in such a profound way with something so frivolous, there's some really much more insightful things that I would love to do with that medium. And so it kind of went from there. Wow. And so what was the second film? Second film was about artists and what they what they do and what drives them profiling about 
four or five artists. So there's a silversmith that we profiled in Idaho who's actually got a really good uh, following now on the internet, and she's doing really well. But you, you um, I mean, she didn't hire you to do a puff piece about her. No. You decided, no, like, th- these I'm going to do a film about artists, and you sought out four artists and profiled them? Yeah, and here's the deal, Bart. Because I was working in radio, and because Melissa had a job, my wife, it, it allowed me to kind of do that thing on the side that many people do with their art, which is just kind of self-fund things, do them in your spare time. You know, at first it was kind of like that. You know, by the time I got into filmmaking, I'd already been married for several years and had a kid and bills to pay and a life. And so I didn't want to derail it all when I did get serious and rack up a lot of debt at film school. I couldn't afford to drop everything and go to film school. So so, so you made this this second movie. How long? Yeah, and by the way, on on that, sorry, in, in the independent filmmaking community, there's this big debate over whether people should go to film school or not, and a lot of people, including some sort of real, really like big name directors and that sort of thing, think you should just dive in and learn by experience. I have heard that. Yeah, I have heard. And that. I, I and you know, I definitely envy the the students at at your place at, yeah, at USC. Yeah, school spend of cinematography. Fifty thousand dollars going to the best cinematography school. You know, in the world, in the Spielberg building or yeah. in the, uh, you know, I mean, it's the, the Lucas backlot. Yeah, it's all and, there. And like, it's crazy that the resource I had a conversation with one of the students there where I said, you don't know how good you have it. And she said, oh, no, 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 I do. Today, she says, I, I was working motion capture on green screen on a soundstage on a professional lot. She says, I'm excited. Like every morning I go to class, <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. But like, yeah, no, I know that. I know that soon you're talking about Cecilia. And yeah, she's amazing. And but she she works on virtual reality filmmaking. Yeah. And 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 you know, she had all all the way through school, she had all of this access to this equipment and stuff. And so it's incredible. You know, so that yeah, that's amazing. But there is and, a, but, but the but other I'm school a, of thought is is go out there and make movies. Yeah, and I'm in a much more scrappy, chaotic sort of bootstrapping indie film world like a lot of indie filmmakers where I learned by being a production assistant on this thing and helping a director of photography on a reality show over here and co-writing a screenplay with this guy and you know producing a TV commercial for this company and that sort of thing and you piece it together over time and you wear you wear a lot of hats so you've got to kind of get good at multiple things knowing how to put together a good story and all the technical details that make a film work, how to make a good image and that sort of thing. And so, I mean, it's been a really interesting few years. How long have you been and at it? Like, probably six years, six years. Wow, I can't believe I allowed you to do a film about me when you don't know what you're doing. Well, hold on. Six years isn't nothing. No, I mean, you came off like Joe Pro. Did I, I didn't even sell you, I don't think. I just said, hey. No, I mean, actually, you didn't sell me at all. Actually, I begged you because, uh, and I, I but, <laughs> no, I didn't beg you to make a documentary. If you remember, I mean, like the true story is, is that my dad and I were working on this book and it wasn't going well. And mm. I thought we should just sit down and have a conversation because writing isn't working for us. So I, so I said, let's get a tape recorder. And we'll record it. That's right. I think I told you, I said like, hey, I'm going to, rec- I'm going to do this. I'm going to tape record it. And you're like, well, why don't you just film it so that you have it on record? And I was like, will you come out and film it? And you were like, yeah, sure. Like, I'll do you that favor. But then <laughs> as we started filming, you were the one that came to me and said like, there, I could do something here. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I really believe in that film. I just think it's a really com- – well, you see the response to the trailer. The idea of it, people are super excited because I think they can see this is a conversation we want to be in on. And I remember you said, you know, there's nothing more interesting than than two smart people talking. I think that applies to you and your dad for mo- – and, and it's not just an intellectual conversation. To me, that's the real heart of it is the fact that it's a father and a son. It's a – an articulate father and son, but not only that, it's 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 a heartfelt oh, conversation. Yeah. Like, you know, he and I like there's a lot of emotion between us. Like, right. we are passionate people, and we have been through a lot together. And so, and the conversation is compelling, even by itself. And then when you add sort of the the documentary structure and make it a make it a story and let people see here's here's what happened and show them the most interesting pieces of this. 
I think it's really good. Now, I have a question for you, actually. Wait, can, can I just tell you, like, people are yeah. very excited about the trailer. I got a lot of a lot of feedback off that trailer. But people were excited about the Suicide Squad trailer, too. And that movie <laughs> tanked because it evidently it sucked. Every good thing in it was in the trailer. Well, now you know why we're taking our time over it and doing it right. <laughs> now, what was what was your experience of being of being filmed? What's it like to be the subject of a documentary and have people pointing cameras at you? You know, I mean, I I've been recorded or I've been watched. Like I've talked to a lot of people. It's a little different when you're on film because there's only this one person there talking to you. And I know you don't enjoy watching yourself. No, not at all. That's that's I really don't. Or like this podcast, my sister in law wrote me a letter about this one podcast and she said, Bart, like that was a really interesting conversation, but you just drone on and on at some point, like you're repeating yourself. Like, and I wrote back to her and said, you don't understand long form podcasting and you listen to Mark Marin or, or, or Seth Rogen. Those guys talk forever and people love it. You don't know what you're talking about. So then like a week later, I had to listen to that podcast for another reason because of something mm-hmm. I was writing and I'm halfway through it and I'm like, Oh my gosh, it's so long. Like, and why do I keep this? talking? This is ridiculous. And I stammer. Stop <laughs> saying like. And, and and I called her back and I said, I take it all back. You were so right. Um, wow. And so listening to myself is really hard. It's I think anybody that's a communicator needs to listen to themselves and needs to, to, to watch themselves. Listening to you is hard. You should try editing you. Oh, I bet. Look, I, 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 like, I, I feel sorry for anybody who has to like, go through that with me but i will no, tell you I, I mean no i i think it's a pretty intimidating thing to be surrounded by equipment and bright lights and lenses in your face and and also on top of all of that be asked some really probing questions like i did with you i mean it's not for the faint of heart you know what i mean no i, I think for me the hardest part is is that i am not a speaker or a presenter i'm not a, i'm not a performer i'm a communicator which means that like I'm not I'm looking into the eyes of the person I'm talking to. Yeah, it's all about that person. And I'm trying to figure out how I get this across and are they getting it and like what do I have to say? And it's the problem I have with this podcast as well is that there's nobody there. Right. And so right. The, the 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 reason why my 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 solo podcasts go like 20 minutes, my conversation podcasts go like 2 hours because I'm trying to hit it from every angle because there's nobody out in the audience that I can go like, oh, they got it. We can move on. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's tough to know. So, um, anyway, anyway that, that's just. Well and, well, and you know, on the documentary side, there's a whole conversation that happens between documentarians about like how much truth can you really capture? One of the things that Errol Morris, uh, one of one of my heroes, always said is that, you know, this idea of cinema verite, where you can just kind of point a camera at something and record it in its nat, you know, as naturally as possible. And that if you don't use artificial lights and that if you don't do reenactments and if you just watch something, then somehow truth is going to emerge out of that project. That's just a bad idea. And the presence of the camera and the fact that you are filming this hour and not the hour before it or the hour after it, like, yes. It's come, and, come on. And also the fact that you have to have a lot of trust of the person on the other side of the camera, but you also have to have a lot of trust of the editor. And in my projects, every single project, I, I have people that tell me, why are you wasting time editing your projects? You could throw it off to an editor and have, and, and to me, editing is the heart of the, of the film. There's no way I'd give that up on my own projects. I mean, I've, I've edited other films, other people's films, but I I wouldn't give up that job of editing because I just think there's a lot of trust that you have to have in that person to know not only what's interesting, but also what remains faithful to the spirit of that thing. You talk about truth. You know, what are you editing in and why? Because it's not about what you edit out. It's about what you edit in. Okay, so you're you're six years editing out, editing in, looking for truth this way. Mm -hmm. Okay. What have you learned about asking people questions or about like trying like trying to draw out of people the essence of themselves like because i think in our human relationships we're not all making documentary films but those of us that really want to suck the marrow out of life have learned that you can be with somebody and not be fully present that you can be in a conversation and not really be 
drawing the other person out, but that there's something magical that happens when somebody points their, the lens of their eyes at you and says, I really want to know what's going on with you. Like I'm, I'm focused on you. And like, yeah. And so you do that. I do. Have you learned any tricks of the trade that you, that, that, that translate where you say like, this is what I've learned about people or about asking questions or about watching. Like, what can you tell me? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. Well, I mean, and interviewing people on radio or on a podcast is so different than doing it for a documentary film. Why? Because because this is a this is a conversation between you and I. Like if I have a thought and I think I see where you're going and I can kind of, you know, we I, I can interject or I can interrupt or you can interrupt me and there's sort of a to and fro. And in, in a documentary format, I, typically I don't use my voice very much, always a tiny little bit. Like there's always a tiny little like a few a few times during a film where like there'll be an off camera voice and it keeps you kind of aware that there's a filmmaker. But for the most part, these people are in monologue the way they're presented. So that's so interesting. interrupt Marty, them Marty's a, My wife's a painter and we, we studied certain painters that do very realistic things. But there was a, a few of them that would always leave a dot of paint like they would show a place where a paint had dripped because they wanted to remind you. Hey, somebody made this painting, and it sounds wow. like when you let that voice drop in, like one of that's so cool. One of the things you're saying is like, "Hey, don't ever think you're seeing reality here." Yeah, I'm making exactly. this movie for you. You got it. You got it. And and that same thing happens when I show you the setup. If you see suddenly part of my lighting setup, mm -hmm. I'll just br show it for like a few frames. Let you see don't forget what this is. This is not reality. This is you're watching through a frame and it's my frame. I'm showing you what I want you to see. And so there's a reminder in the, in the work itself. And so you're totally right about that little drop of paint. That's a good analogy. Um, but like with this conversation, we can interrupt each other and it's much more free flowing and, and, but it's harder. So when you said listening, how, how to listen to people yeah, like d filming a documentary will teach you that because there's a million things that I want to interrupt. But, um, you know, I mentioned Errol Morris. What he used to say <laughs> is he used to make it a point of pride how little he interrupted. Like he would he would allow someone he said he once let someone go on in one answer to a question for like three hours or something like that. I can't remember exactly how long, but he 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 interrupted as little as he possibly could because he believed that that's when you can really learn something from somebody. If you let them talk, it's an extended answer. They're free to say whatever they want. That's when you'll get a, a truer. Do you, and do you find it to be true that if you let people go? The truth is at the end of the paragraph rather than at the beginning. More so, yeah. Um, I must never get the truth out of anybody. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's true. If you let people talk, I think people who listen are already at an, at an advantage, honestly, a really huge advantage because you know yourself. People in, in their day-to-day -day lives have a lot to say. Including me. I mean, I put myself in this in this category. They have a lot to say. They're they're not all that good at hearing, yeah. and so at least for that benefit, at least it's a very good discipline. You know, when I ran Mission Year back in the day, when I was doing Christian stuff, and already when I was running Christian ministries, I was, I was, you know, I was sort of moving my slowly moving out. And by the, by the time I was organizing these things, I didn't feel comfortable sending people out to talk about what you, what you believed. So I would send my students door to door like Mormon missionaries, except mm -hmm. I would tell them like, you're not allowed to tell anybody anything. Mm -hmm. Your job is to stop by and say, we're going back to the church later on tonight. We're going to be praying. Is there anything you'd like us to pray for? And it was amazing what people would tell them if they would just stop and listen. And it turned out that there yeah. was a, a lot of people out there that nobody listened to. Yeah. I, I think as a secular humanist, I could stop and say like, I'm, it, it, it doesn't trip off the tongue quite the same way. If I say like, I'm going back to the house to articulate my fondest hopes and dreams. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but the point was, is that these guys would go knocking on doors and what they found was, is that if they were willing to listen, people would just talk. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that almost as a, 
as a derivative of that, uh, pe people are more interesting than you give them credit for. You know, you, if you stop the average person, most people have a story to tell that is that is interesting inherently or interesting in its own in its own right. And I think um, not enough of those stories are told either. I wonder, like, when you're a documentary filmmaker and you go to that artist in Idaho, mm -hmm. they're motivated to tell you the story partly because you're recording it. Right. I'm thinking, like, in real life, like, let's just say somebody you're at a party and you sit down opposite somebody and you say, like, I'd like to hear your story. I'm not, do you think you need a project? You need to say, I'm doing research for this or I'm... I'm or do you think that just saying, I'd like to hear your story is enough motivation for most people? I don't know. I, it, it, you may not like the answer because it almost seems like you do need a premise with people to, to be there and to, and to ask the questions and to really be interested in their lives. Otherwise, I think people in the West, and maybe this is just a critique of our culture, they tend to be suspicious of people that are too interested in them, you know? Um, well, I, boy, I know in the inner city when I would do that, you know, if you showed in too much interest, people would be like, are you a cop? Are you a caseworker? Like the only, the only people that right. asked you questions and listened were people that were trying to trip you up. Yeah. Right. But, and, and I guess that's a, that's a, that, that's born out of experience. I'm sure for many of them, which is one of the beautiful things about like being in, when I was a minister and it's one of the reasons why on campus, I call myself a chaplain. Because then, when I, I'm, as the humanist chaplain, if I ask you like, hey, what's going on? You say, why do you want to know? You go, eh, I'm the humanist chaplain here. You know, like, yeah, they, totally like, gives you a I'm premise. I'm here to support students. And people go, oh, well, then I'll tell you my story. Like I have right. and the, no trouble getting kids to tell me their story. And the good thing is with you, you know, you really are genuine and you are interested in them and for, for their own sake. And like, it would be just as genuine if you were to come up and go, hey, I'm Bart Campolo. I want to, I'm just interested in you. You know, I just want to figure out what, what's going on in your life and how I can help you with it. See, I, I, that, and I think that that's my documentary film. Like, I honestly think, John, I wonder if it's true for Errol Morris and these other people, but my sense when you made the doc, when you were filming me was that you wanted to make a documentary film. And I'm not saying like that you wanted to make me look good or bad or anything, but I got the impression that you wanted to, you were asking me questions and you wanted me to tell you not just for your film, but because you thought I was important. Like you thought mm. it, I mattered. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, when you show up with a bunch of cameras and equipment, it's almost like you're saying non-verbally, you're a big deal. Like, I'm, like right. Like, that's true. Your story it, it matters. Here, man. Your story matters. Yeah. And so I felt honored by your questions because they were being mm -hmm. asked with that. And so I guess the question is, how do you, ask an individual in real life on a bus in a train mm -hmm. station at a party, how do you kind of set up the cameras and the, the, the imaginary lights? How do you send the message that says, no, 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 I really am interested in your story. Yeah. It's a good question. Do you, I mean, do you feel like you're good at getting people to talk to you in real life or only when you're making movies? Uh, I, I'm not bad, but I, I think... <laughs> I think, I think I could, I think I could be, I, I don't think I'm as inter, you know, honestly, by the end of my day and I've had conversation and I don't know if you have this in your job where, you know, by the end of, of your day, you've had so many conversations or you've talked to so many people that maybe it's, maybe you're done for now. Like, you know, and so sometimes I feel like when I'm in social situations, I kind of heard some stories and I'm kind of done with stories for right now. And so I don't think I'm as good sometimes socially as I could be. You know, I think that's probably true. And, and I don't think I'm good socially at this stuff. The weird thing is, is that I almost never am at a party or on a bus interacting with anybody in social mode. Like mm -hmm. I don't talk to people for the hell of it. It's, it's my one way of contributing to the world. What I'm most interested in when I'm talking to somebody is whether or not I can make them feel good. I'm, I'm sort of you're one of you're literally one of the only people that I know like that. 
most people, I think, they, they're either interested because they, they just find people fascinating, which I'd put myself kind of in that category. To the, to the extent that I do what, what you're describing, I do it because I'm fascinated, interested. It's the same reason I'm making films and doing Yeah, you're genuinely interested in the other person. Yeah, I'm just, in, I'm just fascinated, but it's kind of selfish. Like, I'm not doing it to help them. I'm not doing it because I want them to have a better life, although that would be nice. I'm not doing it because I, I'm a good person. I'm doing it because I'm kind of just curious about people. I also really like people. I think it helps if you like if you well, like yeah, and people I do too. In like, and I do too. Like, and a lot of times, like a lot of people that I start talking to, they're interesting in their own. Like you're interesting in your own right. Like I start talking to you, I'm not like doing you a favor. I, yeah, no. But what you've done is you've done that mind hack on yourself where you've transitioned to figuring out that making other people happy or or helping other people to be happy or helping other people generally really does you a lot of good or or the other thing is like finding the interesting thing in them like there comes a point where i'm talking to you and i go like wow tell me more about that movie how did you do that i'm just i'm into the story but yeah, then right. sometimes people I go like, wow, I'm not into your story about miniature horse breeding. Like that's not mm-hmm. intrinsically interesting to me. Mm-hmm. But then I go like, but you care about this. And yep. why do you care about this? And I, I become interested at a, at, a, at a meta level. That's right. That's right. And then there's this third level where I go like, even if a person's like mean and they're not, okay, now I'm interested in, can I find the goodness in you? Or can I find... A need that I can meet or can can I somehow turn this negative interaction now I'm I'm sort of watching myself and going like how good are you Mm. as a conversationalist right I'm convinced that a lot of people in this world need to be treated as though they are interesting and valuable and worthy of a documentary even though they're not and so I think like yeah we have to approach people with that kind of and, and the dignify them by treating them as the subject of our inquiry as if they were very, very important, like to prepare for the interview like we would if we were pre- interviewing Barack Obama or or, or Alan Alda. Mm. But in, but sort of give that treatment, give the give the Katie Kirk treatment. To the guy sitting next to me on the bus. Yeah. And, 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 and you say like, why? And I go like, well, if you got, if you get good at it, if you practice it, it's like, why play chess? You go like, well, it's intrinsic. Once you understand how it works and you can see how to move it, like it becomes intrinsically interesting process. Filmmaking, intrinsically interesting process, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and maybe like an intrinsically beautiful process too. There's something beautiful about, especially spontaneous human connections where you're not expecting it. Uh, you you end up having an amazing conversation. You end up connecting with somebody on on a level that you're like, man, I really I, I don't want this to end, you know. And I think that that happens more often to people who are open to the opportunity, and you know, really really want to pursue pursue a a good relationship with their fellow fellow human being. When you get somebody who on a documentary and they make yeah. a mistake or they reveal themselves in a way they don't want to reveal themselves, and and they go, wait, wait. I don't want that in the movie or, or like, or I'm not comfortable anymore. Or like they get nervous. What do you do? Mm-hmm. It depends. That's that. I mean, you're hitting on a very interesting part of that process. Sometimes documentaries will give their subjects kind of a say, not a final cut kind of say, but, but a, an influence over that editing process where you might want to come to a subject and go, okay, I really, really believe in this, in this piece of this interview. I think it's important to the story. I think it's vital that we see that moment happen for you because it was a legitimate, genuine moment, even though you think it was a mistake. Um, here's, you know, he, here it is. Watch it. Tell tell me that we can't use that. And, and you know, you'll end up ha- having a pretty interesting sort of back and forth. The biggest and best documentarians will will do that, especially if they don't have an adversarial relationship with their subject. You know, it's not like um, the jinx where, you know, your subject is Robert Durst and he's a murderer, you know. Or even like going clear where you're like, I'm trying to expose this thing. The the Scientologists, yeah. yeah. And so 
I'm not opposed to, I feel a certain pull in either direction because if it really came down to it, and I don't, I'm not sure that it ever has for me, but if it really came down to it, I suppose, you know, I, I have I have final cut on on my projects, of course, but like I mean, are you going to really leave that think... thing in where my dad jumps across the table and grabs me by the throat and says, "Believe, believe, believe"? <laughs> yes, I'm I'm tempted to keep that in. That was a tough yes. moment for me. I, I was hoping was. You know, I was hoping you take that out. <laughs> yeah, no, and but there are some moments in that, and I don't want to give away too much, but like there are some things where I know if I were to if I were to give you or Tony. Oh yeah, there's some your stuff. Your absolute there's choice you would be like I want that gone. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think it's I but I think you also understand what's real and and what and also that if something is genuinely advancing the story and is genuinely revealing and it's not frivolous and it's not sort of sensationalist that it serves a purpose of illuminating a deeper truth and if there's a moment between you and your dad that's kind of fraught a little bit or touchy, then it doesn't mean that you hate each other and that this represents your entire relationship inherently. It may be even more valuable than most of the other things because you're seeing a real moment of emotion or or whatever. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you have so much footage that if you want to make yeah. it look like we love each other, you you could do that. If you want to make it look you like we it. hate each other, you can do that. If you want to make it look yeah. like I ran intellectual circles around him, no problem. Vice versa. Right. You know, you can pull it. You can make that thing go anywhere. You, I mean, what, and that's such a such a difficult balance to strike, especially on that film, because there's so much there, and it's a very, very difficult. I, I don't, you know, they say that documentary films aren't finished; they're abandoned. And at a certain point, I need to abandon, which we've pretty much done, you know, for the most part, abandon the edit where it's at and say this represents this well enough. Yeah. Um, without without having to to sit through, put the audience through fourteen hours of footage. Well, it's funny because I didn't want to talk. I, like I wanted to talk to you because like I want people to see this film because you put a lot into it, and and I think and hopefully it'll draw some attention to a way of relating between people of faith and people who don't have faith that's more kind and and, and yeah. constructive. Like like I think I like if you get anywhere close to portraying the reality of that conversation. And more than I liked that conversation and I thought that it was something that, so I like, I want people to see the movie, but I didn't want to have you come in and talk about it at all until you were pretty much done until you had your story in hand. Yeah. Cause I like, I don't want people to think like, yeah, Bart's buttering him up cause he wants to come off better in the movie. <laughs> right. No, I mean, the edit is pretty much done. It wouldn't matter what you said now, Bart. <laughs> But no, I mean, I think it it is a really good conversation. And and more than that, I would like to portray this really nice relationship that I think you have with your dad. I mean, I saw it on the inside. We were together for days and days, just the three of us, you, me, and your dad. And um, I, I really saw how it works. And it's a very, I hope that it comes across. It's playful. There's a lot of energy, good good dynamics there. There's frustration on both your parts with each other. I hope that when you watch it, aside from the agony of watching yourself talk, I hope you, you look at it and go, when it's all said and done, yeah, this kind of represents how it is for me and my dad. Yeah, it's funny. My son um, saw the docu He saw the, the trailer, mm -hmm. and he said to me, he said, I got a feeling that 50 years from now, I'll be able to show this to my son and say, that was your grandfather and your great grandfather. Like that's who they were. Yeah. And um, oh my god. Yeah, he was really. He said like, this is going to be. This is really special to me. He said because he just saw a few a few minutes of it, but he said yeah. that's you guys. That's and he's and, and, that's and we're really aware. That's a good that, reaction. I mean, what's funny is is that my dad's not the same guy he was even two years ago. Like at the end of your life, things change fast. Just like at mm -hmm. the beginning of your life, things change fast. And he's, he's special now. I might, you know, my son and he are off on a trip together right now. And, and, and my, my son's like, it's, it's not the same as being with him 10 years ago, but like, it's this other him and it's real too. Mm -hmm. But I think you captured um, this one moment, which is a, a pretty tender time. Like when he's getting older and sort of facing mortality and I'm leaving the faith and he's, you know, like there's a lot going on there. And. So, yeah, I, I mean, I hope people dig the movie or see the movie 
partly because I just want them to see like, it doesn't matter whose ideas you like. I just want people to see that like, it's possible for people who have been through a lot together to end up going, I'm more interested in knowing you than I am in winning you over. And you said it, that's it. And, and so, yeah, I think it's going to be a good thing. And, 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 you know, we'll talk again, maybe when it comes out, like when it's out, I'll bring you back and we'll talk again. But again, like I'm really grateful to you for wanting to make it on the one hand, but I'm also grateful to you for like, I learned a lot about documentary films by watching you make one or watching, you know, be mm-hmm. part of that. And it actually is, it's changed the way I watch documentaries. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting and so from the inside, it's so much more chaotic. I think people feel like these things land in a very obvious way, but there's a million ways that you can go yeah, but they look, on every single documentary. When you, when you watch them, you think that's the only way it could go. Right. And I, I, it seems inevitable, and I'm, but it's I'm not. realizing now that, yeah, it seems inevitable. It's not. Listen, a little voice in my head named my sister-in-law, Mary, who I mentioned earlier, is going like, Bart, mm. you're doing it again. Like that was a good conversation. Stop. And so, Stop while so you're I'm ahead. stopping right now. But All right, like, man. Thanks for being here, man. I will talk to you soon. Hey, thank you, Bart. Appreciate it. All right, it. man. Catch you later. All right. So that was my conversation with John Wright. You can find out more about John on the website, bartcampola.org. I, I, I don't know how I can put more pressure on him to wrap that sucker up. He's got all the footage. It's all about the editing and the post-production. And I'm just so anxious for that thing to be done and out there. And as soon as it is, I'll let you know. I'll bring John back and he'll tell you where you can find it and how you can distribute it and all that kind of stuff. But in the meantime, at least I, I, I hope this kind of turns you on because for me, I, I heard this great interview with Werner Herzog, documentary filmmaker who just made this cool movie about the internet. And I love knowing who's behind the camera. And so I hope you enjoyed the conversation with John. I hope I see you next week. We'll do something else really cool. I've got some listener mail that is really interesting coming up. So uh, yeah, we got, we got stuff in the queue that'll be good. All right, folks. See you next week. For more information about the work of Bart Campolo, please visit barcampolo.org.